Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 6, Episode 3 Much to our surprise, Colleen was nowhere to be seen at our prearranged rendezvous. There was only one access road, and that led to Bampton, where we were staying that night. Peter and I decided to walk along the road in the hope of meeting Colleen along the way. We'd gone no more than a few hundred yards when our blue car trundled round a bend. I don't want to drive any more, Colleen grumbled, getting out of the car. I'll walk back to Bampton and see you there. Colleen's hunched frame was a picture of wretchedness as she shuffled along in the late afternoon sunshine. Isolated in her despondency, she neither looked up nor waved when we drove past. Peter and I were sunning ourselves outside the Crown and Mitre Hotel when Colleen strode into view. The solitary constitutional had revived her spirit sufficiently to raise a half-smile. Colleen was taking her first sip of beer when a familiar figure came lurching towards us through the village graveyard across the road. Moments later, Dewdrop, in a state of near collapse, slumped onto the bench beside us. His resilience was remarkable. In no time, the slippery old goat had revived enough to down his first pint of the day. I was a little put out at his sudden recovery, as it robbed me of the chance to tap his shin to see if it made a clunky, metallic sound. Dewdrop, or Bryn, as we learned, was lively and engaging company. It only took a couple of pints to transform the mischievous rapscallion of the mountaintops into an independently-minded nonconformist. Bryn's retirement wish had been to live the gypsy life with his wife, pumping their bluey around the British Isles. Unfortunately, illness had scuppered their plans. Since retiring as a Portsmouth GP a decade earlier, Bryn had been nursing his wife through the miseries of multiple sclerosis. Sadly, she would never realise her dream of walking the misty Lakeland Fells or feeling the bracing tug of a gale-force wind in her hair. Not so for Bryn. A thoughtful cousin had travelled from Australia to relieve him of his nursing duties for a couple of weeks. Even though he experienced great difficulty walking, Bryn was eager to revisit the Lake District, which had been the playground of his youth. The staggering shuffle across the mountain tops was his first holiday in many years. Bryn emerged as a selfless man of warm heart, courage and kindness. He was a man of great style which I'm ashamed to say I had misunderstood and dismissed when he was in need of nothing more than the reassurance of companionship. After a couple of pints, we retired to prepare for dinner. With the exception of Grasmere, I'd be landed with poorly appointed rooms, whilst Peter and Colleen's accommodation had been spacious, comfortable, with private facilities. At the Crown and Mitre, the tables returned. Due to a booking mix-up, I found myself lost in an enormous stateroom, complete with a massage foot-bath. Whilst I was luxuriously accommodated, Peter and Colleen languished in a room that could have been considered only modest at best. A magnificent log fire filled the stark dining room with the flickering softness of naked flame. Bryn shared the central table with a pint of beer and an Australian named Hugh who busied himself writing a journal. We'd no sooner ordered dinner from the menu of standard pub fare then Peter noticed the specials board that offered venison and wild boar, always ready to avoid lamb shank, poached salmon, or Cumberland sausage. We opted to change our order. The landlord graciously accepted the proposal, even though he would have to eat my order of lamb henry, which was already defrosting in the microwave. 
I hope you appreciate the sacrifice I'm making, the landlord said in his nasal brummy accent. This'll be the third lamb, Henry, I've had this month. Whilst I ate the venison and Peter attacked a grainy slab of boar meat, Colleen unloaded the series of events that had left her in such a miserable state of mind. Back at Shirley's, the farmyard was full of commotion. A fox hunt was about to start, Colleen explained. So I started to take photographs like mad. The big trail has been laid across that field, said one of the hunters. If you stand by that gate, you'll get some good snaps. Colleen stood there waiting for the fun to start. A hunter's horn sounded, the barn door was flung open, and a pack of fifty or so foxhounds surged into the farmyard, sniffing the air and yelping wildly. One of the hounds picked up the scent and, howling madly, bounded across the yard, accompanied by a wild salvo of trumpeted hunting horns. Instantly, the tangle of crazed dogs became a disciplined pack with a single objective, kill the fox. Colleen went rigid and the blood drained from her face as the pack, with their tails erect and braying for blood, headed straight towards her. She closed her eyes, expecting the worst, but at the last moment the leading hound veered off through the open gate. Still flustered, she tried to take a picture as the pack spilled past her legs into the field. The camera jammed. The chip was full. The moment gone. From then on, her day was all downhill. Motoring along the quiet country roads, in the early morning stillness towards Ullswater, she was set upon by the second frenzied pack of an altogether different cut. She'd become the innocent victim of a swoop of self-centred cyclists chasing the silverware and accolades that fall to the winner of the annual triathlon. The race attracts a tough breed of egotists who relish the gruelling Cumbrian conditions. The first ordeal the athletes undertake is a one-mile swimming race in icy Ullswater. The dripping wet competitors then cycle for 38 miles through the unforgiving hills and valleys of the Lake District. The final and most arduous leg of the trial is a nine-mile cross-country race on foot along the stony ankle-twisting tracks to the top of a mountain and back. The mountain in question is the aptly named Helvellyn the 2,600-foot monster that bad weather made unsafe for Peter and me to walk on the previous day. At the lakeside, I watched the competitors turn blue with cold, Colleen continued, and that was before the swimming race had even started. All morning the roads were chaotic. No matter where Colleen went, she was ensnared in a manic mob of half-naked cyclists, she became annoyed enough to consider hiding behind the finishing line to throw rocks at the leaders in their final sprint home to chest the tape. She became so consumed by cyclist-induced road rage that she took a wrong turning and finished up on a motorway amongst an avalanche of road hogs and Formula One hopefuls at the controls of twenty-ton trucks. How was dinner? our brummy host inquired. The venison was magnificent, I was pleased to reply. So was the wild boar, Peter chipped in, although it would have benefited from a little light sauce. Apple? inquired the landlord in a soft, adenoid burr. No, Peter replied, perhaps mild mustard. The landlord gave Peter an old-fashioned look that lingered a hint longer than might normally have been considered polite. I'd like the sticky date pudding, interrupted Colleen, smiling at the landlord to ease the tension. Throughout dinner, Hugh gave the impression of being fully absorbed with his journal, but all was not what it seemed. 
He was slyly eavesdropping on everything that was going on. Periodically, when unable to contain himself any longer, he'd stop writing and lob out a droll comment or snippet of information for anyone to catch. Hugh's oddity extended well beyond his unique communications technique. When speaking, he contorted his body and hands as though trying to escape their confinement. Occasionally he'd tuck both elbows into his sides, then swivel his head and frame sideways to tabletop level from where he would skim words across the tablecloth. The moment his hands became free, his long fingers twisted like those of an unfortunate individual suffering from mild epileptic spasm. When addressing an individual, he turned his trunk sideways, and peering along his shoulder, he thrust out his chin in a manner that challenged contradiction, then, being loaded and cocked, fired off his words. A keen observer of human nature may have concluded, from his demeanour, that Hugh was a touch tense that evening. Throughout dinner, his staccato interjections became more frequent, and I was able to patch together a woolly picture of the man. He was in management, and worked long hours from home, for which he was paid obscene amounts of money. He didn't draw attention to his salary in a boastful way, more through embarrassment, as though in his own mind he didn't believe the work he did justified his salary. He'd invested some of his riches wisely, and bought a 1950s British sports car with aeroplane windscreens. He lived in Gippsland, east of Melbourne. I was keen to farewell the Dutch girls, but was unable to get the chap. I'd had a few glasses of wine, and was dependent on Colleen to drive, but after a day of misery on the roads, she was reluctant to get behind the wheel. I was marooned, and a trifle dejected. My mood quickly changed, however, when the landlord captured everybody's attention. The sticky date pudding's off, he proclaimed with great relish. I'm afraid the last sticky date pudding has been sacrificed to my wife's favourite TV soap, he continued. My wife Gwendolyn was so absorbed in the drama that it wasn't until the programme finished that she remembered the pudding was in the oven. When she opened the oven door, a great billow of smoke escaped, and that's why the fire alarm went off. At that moment, a sheepish-looking landlady appeared, carrying a kitchen tray from which a wisp of smoke curled upwards. Encouraged by peals of laughter, she paraded around the dining room, allowing each of us to inspect the fractured bowl and the smouldering mound of black clinker that had so recently held the promise of pleasure as Colleen's pudding. Following Bryn's lead, we ordered large cognacs to toast the end to a good day. Most accounts of long-distance trekking dedicate dozens of paragraphs to sore feet and blisters. I'm pleased to say that my feet had suffered no obvious ill effects from the walk so far. However, the prospect of a foot massage was too tempting to resist. I filled the electric foot bath with hot water and aromatic bath salts in readiness for the exotic pleasure of vibrations on the soles of my feet. Sitting comfortably in a low-sung chair, with my feet submerged in the warm water and soles tingling, resistance was impossible. I closed my eyes and gave in to the luxury of dream time. I woke later and was startled to find a mass of fine blue bubbles frothing high between my thighs. The bath oil was bubble bath. There should have been a warning on the label. Good night.